This is the Think Queerly podcast, and I'm your host, Darren Steele. Well, today is an interview with one of my coaching clients, John Carl Lewis. So I want to start by giving you a brief introduction to who he is and what we're going to be talking about on the podcast today. This is definitely a first time for everything episode for me. I've wanted to be able to interview some of my clients when it would be appropriate to do so. And since a few of my clients are doing something in the world that's either creative or entrepreneurial to make a difference in LGBTQ lives, I thought that John Carl Lewis and another podcast that I'll be following this one shortly with another client would be a really great way to not not only to introduce what they do and how they are helping to empower other queer lives, but what I do sort of behind the scenes um, and how I work with and how I help my clients get greater clarity and focus and direction in their own lives. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about John Carl Lewis. He has a website, sexgaychristian.com. And no, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> it's not a dating website. Um, he might laugh or cringe at me saying that, but I just want to put that out there. John's background is really quite interesting. Um, from his website, although he's not an ordained pastor, he's not a minister or a priest, he's studied theology, scripture, discernment and ethics at Princeton Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, and General Theological Seminary. He is currently in training to be a spiritual director, which immerses him in contemplative practices designed to integrate an awareness of the divine presence into every aspect of one's personhood and relationships. Now, he's been distracted by a number of questions that he didn't think he could ask at one point that seemed to always be on the periphery of the academy and the religious establishment. And of course, there were places where he could explore identity and questions of belonging as a gay man, as a black man, and as a Christian, embracing those two identities. But he didn't find or he couldn't find a place where he could answer his questions about sex sexual ethics, sexual practice, and sexual relating. So one of the core questions that he's presented when we've been working together is that he wanted to know more about his sexual attitudes and practices could better integrate with his spiritual life and practices. And specifically, how could he help others do the same? Because he knew he wasn't alone in this. And So I try to dedicate as much of this podcast as I can to learning more about who John Carl is, where he's come from, his background, a little bit about his purpose and what's most important to him. And then we do get into a little bit of coaching about some of the work that he's doing to bring his training videos about his approach and a book deal that he has and how he's trying to break this down between what he wants to write about, and of course, what the editor publisher wants him to write about, because that person has something in mind. So that always presents an interesting challenge for us as creative entrepreneurs. How do we do what we want to do versus when somebody is showing up and saying, hey, I would like to work with you. I would like to help to produce your particular creative project. How do you figure that out as well? So I'll have the links for how you can learn more about John Carl in the show notes. Other than that, sit back, enjoy, and I hope you find this an interesting podcast. John Carl Lewis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to doing something like this for quite some time, and I thought I would give my listeners an opportunity to not only find out who you are and what you're bringing to the gay male, but also the broader LGBTQ um, 2S plus community with your work, but how coaching as a process has helped you get clarity, focus, and direction for the work that you're doing. 
let's let's start with who who you are. Maybe give us the, the the short bio, and we'll get into it, like where you currently are and, and what what you do. Well, no time like the present. I like being in the present yeah. as much as I can. Uh, I am a 55-year-old gay black man uh, living in Trenton, New Jersey with my husband of four years, although we've been together 25. Uh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it's been a while. Um it's been good. And uh, we live with uh, two boy cats, one of whom may make an appearance. The work that I do now is um, I am finishing up my training as a spiritual director. So I spend time mm. listening to people talk about their relationship with God. And, and I ask questions to help them go deeper in their understandings and of, of their own spirituality and, and their yeah. own path. Um, in addition to that, uh, I am working on a book project, uh, which I'm calling Sex and the Gay Christian, mm-hmm. um, which is aiming to help gay men, queer men, develop a healthy, sex-positive, Christ-centered ethic for their lives that will help them make sexual decisions that they can be proud of and and are healthy and enhance their life. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I'm trying to build community around um, queer men who want to uh, go deeper and explore mm-hmm. the intersections of their sexuality and their spirituality. What was the impetus or the inspiration uh, that brought you to this idea, like, which is, which is a number of things. It's both this book and the community. The one is probably going to uh, feed off the other, I would think. What, um, was there a moment in life? Was there an, an inspiration? Was there something missing? Um, yes, I felt that there was something missing. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, signed up to um, facilitate a discussion on sexuality and spirituality for um, a queer online organization and um, and found that the materials were very intriguing, but also very short. Uh, it was a 10-week course. And um, we could have spent five weeks on each one of the chapters. And I thought, you know, there could be a longer treatment of this that helps people work through the issues of sexual decision making mm-hmm. in a way that fits their, their values mm-hmm. um, and their personality. Uh, at about the same time, I read Matthias Roberts' book, Beyond Shame, um, which I highly recommend. Um, Not only does it name the problem of shame that so many queer Americans I know carry um, because of our puritanical base, um, but um, he also gives some tips on how to live with shame. Nevertheless, the the book stops somewhat short of creating a positive view of what a healthy sexuality might look like that can be tailored to the individual. So I felt called to do that work and started doing research and then the pandemic hit and I had lots of time to research. So you said something was missing and this was the the course you were taking. Um, And you've talked a little bit about why this is important, but maybe if you feel like getting a little personal, why is what you're doing important to you? This is personally viscerally important because um, I came of age, uh, I came out in 1987, 1988 at the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic. HIV was a death sentence then. All of my expectations about emerging into a 
loving, accepting community were somewhat dashed by the fact that people were walking around emotionally wounded and traumatized mm -hmm. uh, by the fact that their friends were dying. And the people who were dying were largely the group of people I, I would have looked to to be my mentors mm -hmm. uh, and my teachers in the, um, in, to the gay world. And so I felt quite adrift. Uh, I eventually found people, of course, there were people, but the shadow of HIV and the rise of purity culture, which was a backlash to the sexual revolution and mm -hmm. uh, the AIDS pandemic, really soured sexuality as an inherently good thing for, mm -hmm. you know, a, a generation of people. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just beginning to tell their stories now. And it, it didn't just affect straight people, it deeply affected gay people. At least straight people could wait and get married and have sex. For mm -hmm. queer people, it was, uh, no, never. No relationship, no friendships, because that could lead to sex. Um, you'll have to be alone. And many people made that choice, and many people are still making that choice, I find. Um, but we have another alternative, even within the Christian tradition, which is to embrace our sexuality um, and align our sexual values with um for those of us who follow Christ, our Christian values, uh, mm -hmm. and and make something very life filling and um, and bring about some flourishing as opposed to this script of death and destruction and dismay and addiction mm -hmm. and you know, compulsion, all the things that they like to say sex does to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's um. Or in just sort of a point of uh, full transparency here, uh, for myself, I was actually brought up uh, Roman Catholic, and I probably made myself more strictly Roman Catholic than what my parents did, and I was quite involved. And then in my teenage years, probably 16 and 17, I started to really question things without going into a lot of details. Um, I was involved with some uh, retreats that... I think pushed me into um, down an avenue that felt very much like a cult um, and, but also then created the tension <clears throat> when I was really dealing with my emergent voice uh, in the sense of, I wasn't quite ready to publicly say I was gay. I was in my mind pretending I was bisexual, which is just like absolute, for me, that was nonsense. I've never been bisexual. <laughs> then in confession, uh, with a priest, something I shared with him, he came back with such a negative thing to say about um, a cousin of mine who was being excommunicated uh, by the church that I thought, if you can say something so horrible to me in confession about someone that I love very much, <laughs> then I don't think there's any place for me here you know, even though that was a human being, uh, it, it just showed to me a great problem. And then I moved from agnosticism to what I would call atheism to where I'm at now. I don't, I don't stand in atheism as an ideology. Um, I don't really give myself a name other than I'm not religious and I'm not, um, I'm not faith-based, but I've softened my approach in how I relate to others who are, but with that long um, bit of transparency, what I'm interested in you being able to share with me and the listeners is when you say Christian tradition and followers of Christ, there's a lot of possible names for different types of religions. How do you describe your belief system then? I have had many years of reading the Bible but I have also had a number of years of seminary training 
the thing that seminary training, a good seminary, will teach you uh, in your first year is that the Bible you're presented is not how the Bible came together. The Bible came together as fragments, people writing down stories, reflections, musings about the universe and about God, stories about famous people who had great faith or who didn't. Although I went through my cult phase and was uh, part of an evangelical fundamentalist group, I left when uh, I came out and entered the Episcopal tradition, the Anglican tradition, which is a very old tradition, but tends to read the Bible metaphorically rather than literally, and that makes a big difference. And also, in recent years, I went through my own deconstruction uh, right before the period I, I started to write this book. I came to doubt the existence of God. I would say that I'm still an agnostic. Mm -hmm. um, I hope there's a God. I act as if there is one. Mm -hmm. The old white man with the gray beard in the clouds isn't doing it for me anymore. And I'm much more interested in um, the teachings of Jesus, the great prophet and rabbi, who is very Jewish and was epitomizing the most cultivated, cutting-edge thought in the Jewish tradition of that day. And I find that Jesus very captivating. Uh, there's the old quip, uh, Christianity is a wonderful system. It would be nice if someone tried it. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's fantastic. It's interesting because there is, the title of the book might come to me, but it's from Alan Watts. Um, he talks about the difference between faith and belief. Uh, where belief is potentially that much more rigid. You know, you believe this, and if you say something against my belief, then I'm going to be angry and argumentative, and I'll be contentious about it. Whereas faith is that sort of that space of gray, that uh, cloud nebula of possibility. So you may, and I appreciate the way you say it, I I think you said something like, you know, I, I want to believe that there is a God, or, but you're open to discussion. Um and there's a big difference and that, I, you know, we're seeing this in Canada, but where you live in the U.S., it is just the, the polarization between yeah. um, the left and the right. And specifically yeah. in the religious sense, um, there is just no discussion within that, that very right wing Christian framework of what is right and what is wrong, what is believable and what is not. And how did you move into then the very fundamentalist evangelical um, space, knowing who you were as a gay man and, and not having been on that, what, what led you down that road? How did that happen? I blame religious comic books and contemporary Christian music. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. At an impressionable age. Um, mm -hmm. There was this, um, so how, I was going to say horrible man, but uh, I won't call him horrible. His cartoons were truly horrible um, and painted a picture of the agonies of hell and painted hell as a consequence for Oh, listening to rock music, being gay, premarital sex, abortion. Uh, these were all things that were going to send you to a very graphically depicted hell. And so it was driven by fear at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. I had always been religious. I became more religious like you. Um, I became more religious than my parents brought me up to be. The God that I grew up with was actually a more generous God, uh, oh. a more liberating God, being that I came from the Black tradition. You know, the, the church is a liberating force in, in our community uh, when it's working right. And I also had a zeal to belong to something bigger than myself. I probably had 
I well, I still do. I have a fetish for Christian boys. I there is something about there's a priesthood for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, and couldn't resist. <laughs> Had, had I known, <laughs> yeah, had I known, my face would be on the newspaper in the newspapers. Um, <laughs> when I got into college, the genders were somewhat segregated, so I got to be with all the boys, which just suited me fine. Um, and you know, to have a band of brothers, all who love Jesus, is quite an exciting thing um, when you're a young religious man, especially if they're all very good looking and earnest. Well, it's funny, you know, it's purely anecdotal, um, as is often the case. Uh, You you said something interesting, a zeal to belong to something bigger than myself. And when we're younger, adolescents into say early 20s, and we're still really forming connections along the lines of acceptance, connection and care, from a neuroscience perspective, that's your uh, anterior cingulate cortex, the emotional part of the brain mm-hmm. that helps us work in community and build family and belong to tribes, so to speak. Uh, but so many of these younger religious individuals will go to college or university. Maybe they have a, a more privileged upbringing. So they just have a look about them and or then there's a, a, an appearance needing to look more clean cut or maybe people are in uniform and so all these things sort of add up and you think about it from a sort of an outside 30,000 foot view perspective and you're like isn't this like almost designed to work against what they were trying to not have happen in the first place I mean just as a weird observation yeah. right um, yeah and so this fear of mixing the genders and the sexes only creates its own set of problems. It, it does. And, mm. and I would like to say that is only a fundamentalist fear, but it's not. Um, mm. As an Episcopal youth leader, I didn't really promote this, but boys were blue and girls were pink and mm-hmm. no purpling mm-hmm. was allowed which in well, there's all sorts of things wrong with that in terms of expansive gender identities and you know but it was a negative anti-sex message akin to that of the fundamentalists with no positive real positive encouragement to move to think outside of that box um to move in another direction I pulled off a book off the shelf by a noted Episcopalian writer, uh, and she was writing for youth. And I swear to God, she said, sex is something that is best experienced in marriage between a man and a woman. I've met this woman. I know this woman. She's lovely. That not thinking outside of the heteronormative box lies at the root of all of this backlash against uh, gender expressiveness and sexual expressiveness. To me, sort of how you present the work that you do with your background and your experience is, is very open and very welcoming. And I think those really challenging experiences in life are what, you know, make us in many ways the people that we've become. And that, not to sound... Uh, too cliched there, but in the work that you're doing, the potential for you to be able to relate. And if if, mm-hmm. if your uh, preferred clientele is generally gay men, but even broader than that, who have that experience. And I know so many gay men struggle with religion. You know, I certainly did. And I, you know, over the years made my own form of peace with it. Although I think in many ways, we all come back to what we might call a spirituality and um, you know, at the beginning of this year, I interviewed my cousin, uh, Kelly Walker, who's a, a former Dominican priest, and you might really enjoy that that podcast. I've had a, uh, such a close friendship with him since about being 13 years old, and you and I are the same age at 55. Wow. Um, and just seeing him reflect on the person that he is now, 
uh, as an out gay man with his partner for the last, I guess, close to 20 years as well. Um, mm. And his reflections on how he's changed his approach to God and what he believes in. And in my work, reading the Tao Te Ching, looking at how to create a potential universal morality that all sides could sort of agree to is is a challenge that I don't think I would have ever undertaken if it weren't for my own life experience in this way. And I think that's sort of what sometimes attracts uh, people to me for this work that I do. Um, but it also allows me to sort of understand um, the work that someone like yourself is doing as well, because you come with an open heart, you come with human heartedness to to the work that you wish to do and the people that you want to help. So maybe let's come to the point where how you decided to engage with coaching with me. Do you remember what sort of caused you to reach out and more specifically how you were feeling or what you were struggling with when you first reached out? Well, what I was struggling with was um, absolute internal chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, I had spent six to nine months gorging myself on information mm -hmm. um, about sexuality and spirituality and ethics and had all these ideas and directions in which I could go. I, I wanted to create community. I wanted to write a book. Um, I wanted to do one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction. I wanted to do podcasts and videos and blogs simultaneously my own infrastructure in terms of administering that, th there was none. Um, and I knew I needed some uh, scaffolding, whether that be someone telling me what to do or someone teaching me how to create that scaffolding for myself. I knew I needed help. I think you came to my attention because of some articles you wrote for um, the platform medium.com. I stalked you and found your, that you have a podcast and listened to several episodes. And you at one point made an offer to have an hour conversation, an hour you know, open-ended conversation with people about their goals. And I thought, wow, I need to at least try this out, if not move in this direction and make an investment in myself and get some scaffolding. So uh, after we talked, I thought, you know, this is a person who I think can, can help me guide my process of creativity. So I pursued it. Uh, many of the clients that I work with are, are deep thinkers and are creatives and are self-employed. And how you described that I love it. Gorging on information. We can be inundated as, as creatives, however that creativity manifests. Writing a book, wanting to do a podcast and do video simultaneously. And you had told me you had written 80 article drafts or something like that that were sitting like in draft. And, and having so much available at your fingertips, yet not knowing which was the right stack to focus on, like you said, I like the metaphor you use of scaffolding, right? Because you were creating the foundations, but you weren't kind of sure which walls to put up first, and whether or not to have a window or a doorway in any of those walls to let people into, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this is, I don't think this is a problem that will ever go away as a, as a creative. It's just knowing once you've reached that point and, and sometimes reaching that point of utter confusion is a great sign is a great place to go. Here's where I need help. And however you figure out how to get it to then focus on getting, and I think I had called the call. Uh, I had termed the offer something like uh, the clarity and focus session or something yes. like that. Um, yes. And I, I wish I had pulled up those notes, but I had asked you how you wanted to feel at the beginning of the call. And I remember when we talked at, when we got to the end of the call, we had actually accomplished that. 
Now, along the way, you've had some really tremendous insights, I think. Um, is Are there any that sort of, or one that hits you top of mind that you want to talk about that, that helped with that clarity and then helping you establish some direction? Um, well, there have been several. The first one that comes to mind is uh, the assignment you gave me to spend a week breaking down and recording everything I did in 15-minute increments, which gave me a really good sense of when my uh, good times to work were and when my less productive times were. I started to set priorities and realize where I was spending time that wasn't helping me go where I wanted to go. Uh, so I started a process of discernment um, to see what needs to fit in my life. What do I want to fit in my life and what don't I really need right now? So that was very helpful. Also very helpful was the exercise where uh, we went through those article ideas and took a look at them, approached them in a way that let me see what was blocking me right. from doing that work. And we arranged them in order of difficulty for me to work on. Yeah. Safe, challenging, uh, and risky was the, uh, the way we came up with it. Yeah. Yeah. Safe, challenging, and risky. Yeah. Uh, I was amazed at how many were uh, risky. Uh, <laughs> but, but what was uh, interesting is we, we, we dove into the risky ones, and then what happened with that? Well, when we dove into the risky ones, we um, you helped me develop a strategy for thinking about these emotional issues for me, take a look at the emotions mm -hmm. behind it, and mm -hmm. figure out how to break that down into pieces that I could do something with. There were one or two that you, I think, changed from, it, it went from risky right down to safe. It wasn't even challenging anymore. And there was maybe one, there was a handful that were, that you considered risky. There was maybe one that's like, no, that's still risky. We'll leave that alone. Um, but it was such an interesting thing to observe as, as, as a coach, as we sort of like walked it back, like you said, broke it down into pieces and Besides going from, say, risky to a safe topic, and uh, just to be clear, these were either article topics or videos that you could uh, prepare for your website to um, help build the community that you talked about earlier. What was the biggest learning out of moving from risky to either just challenging or safe? How did your... How did you feel differently or approach those topics differently? Well, um, I came to the realization that I needed a little bit of hand-holding to face the emotional stuff that was, that was standing between me and those articles that I just could not see yeah. without help. Yes, I uh, learned to approach uh, those topics in a much different way. I started yeah. to look at each topic and see how far I could break it down into chunks of three points each. If a topic had seven points, then you and I worked it out that I would do seven chunks, each with three points. Much easier to work with than the big, long, amorphous structures I was trying to work with. One of the things that... Um or rather I should say the, the approach I take is never to be didactic. My role is not to tell you what to do in the coaching process. You know, sometimes I might uh, have some ideas that I'll share and I'll always suggest or say, you know, Oh, I've got an idea here. Is this something you want to consider or do you want to like play with this idea and work through it to see if it would help you get from, you know, point A to point B or C, but it's just the asking of questions and then, as you present, I might ask another question. And then it's it's not me knowing what the answer is, but just by sometimes continuing down that path, then there's an enlightenment moment or an inspira inspiration moment for you uh, 
just getting that clarity about, oh, I hadn't seen it this way, or by speaking it aloud and getting outside of our heads is so important. Like what you mentioned, one of the things that you came away with was this outline method um, that you said you felt would be an easier way for you to uh, prepare the structure of your videos yeah. and then be able to to record them. And something I had suggested to you, I didn't say it in quite these words, but to share it here in this way, my invitation to you, I think, was something along the lines of that the more risky the topic, um, and it wasn't about that your topic needed more research, it was about the perhaps transparency or emotional vulnerability that you would bring. Yes. And I had suggested, well, sort of like what you shared at the beginning of our podcast here, your experience growing up and, and, and in the different uh, parts of religiosity that you've, you've lived and experienced, the more that that is worn on your sleeve or that that becomes part of your narrative, the, the, the more connection you will make with people who will, be say, who will think and feel, I've had that exact experience. That's exactly what mm -hmm. I felt. Yet that's scary for us because you're like, oh, what is somebody's yes. going to say something bad about me or I'm going to feel embarrassed, <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. And it is the way we expand our comfort zone is, is by like leaning, I think, further back out of it. So we're at that, that tipping point where we feel a lack of balance, where we feel a lack of security. If we go too far, then you lose your footing, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're, you'll clam up. If you just go, if you just push a little bit and or if you look at what is causing you stress or is fearful or is challenging and, and break it down like we did, you, you might realize that A, it's, it's still too much of a risk or B, wow, it's much less of a risk than I thought now that I broke it down and I see the valuable things that I could bring to the table. Well, you um, had mentioned uh, that I had given you the, 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 the homework uh, to record in 15 minute increments what, you're, uh, what you were doing in your day and maybe to note uh, how you were feeling or emotional state or, or the kind of work you were doing, like were you being creative, were you doing something task related? The reason I asked you to do that is because you had presented, um, oh, I just get up and I sort of like will do whatever I sort of feel like doing. And I had asked you some <laughs> sort of challenging, provocative question like, so is that getting you to where you want to go? Is that helping you accomplish what you want to accomplish? And without saying, well, John Carl, you need to do this and you need to have a calendar. I mean, you had also mentioned you were trying different apps. And I, I didn't say they were bad or wrong, but what I asked you was like, do you know how you're spending your time? And we had looked at um, determining like the night before uh, what might be your most important task the next day. And you realized for yourself, it's, it's better for me to do these in the morning. And this is the important thing is figuring out once you get somewhere with a strategy, how it best suits your own life. So let's talk about, you had emailed me this morning saying you're trying some of these things, but you recognize that they're still odd and awkward. Yes. And <laughs> maybe tell us a little bit more about that. In an effort to not have my days be an amorphous blob, mm. uh, I decided to institute two habits. One habit was to write 200 words every morning at 9 a.m., with some sound and visual and olfactory cues. And my second habit was going to be to uh, stop at 3.30 in the afternoon and determine what three things I wanted to do the next day. Um, I found both, both of those somewhat difficult to do, but I have been showing up uh, at those times anyway, and I realized that I am in no state to write anything coherent at 9 a.m., so I'm not going to expect myself to produce Pulitzer-quality prose at 9 a.m. I kept 9 a.m. for journaling, which is a good way for me to start my day, getting in touch with my emotions and 
getting all that stuff out that stands between me and writing. And at 10.30 now, I write much better stuff uh, uh, for, uh, for a half hour. And more than that, it's just a beginning place. Um, so I'm still getting used to these habits, but um, I was surprised to find that I had time in my schedule to be consistent about these things. And the more I'm consistent, the less buffeted I feel by my own emotions, by poor scheduling. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not scheduling anything for my uh, peak times. And I'm not pushing myself past the time when my brain starts to shut off. Uh, so there's been, um, there. I can see the seeds of a lovely generative uh, ritual routine growing. Mm-hmm. And my creativity is, is responding to that. Oh, good. And this has only been maybe about, I guess, three weeks or so, right? That you've been, uh, that you've done the analysis of the, the week, the 15 minute increments, then implemented uh, some of these practices. Yeah, right. It's been three weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you have a deadline for some work on your book. And, and one of the things was we, we looked at that word count as being so big, it just seemed like daunting and scary. And, and then I said something like, um, you know, here's your time frame. So divide those number of days by the word count. And you just, I mean, it's so simple, but you thought, wow, that is imminently doable. So with that mm-hmm. in mind, how is your progress coming on um, this uh, goal and, and due date that you have? Well, I'm progressing well. Um, mm-hmm. Again, some days it's like pulling teeth. Uh, I got mm-hmm. 200 of, of the 300 words I was shooting for done yesterday. But, I'm, but it's growing. It's growing incrementally. And I have about 5,000 words now that I'm happy with Mm -hmm. um, having in terms of being rough draft. I'm sure a lot of them will go, but it's nice to see the incremental progress. And it's less scary than sitting down and saying, okay, I've got a day. Let's write a chapter. How has your feeling of, of, of worry or, or, or stress around that original goal that you had to write this word count when you first presented it to me? And it just seemed like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. I've got this, this to do. I've got to attend these conferences. I just don't have any time. And then when we broke it down, we said, okay, this is doable. I think I can slot these writing blocks into my schedule over these days. What is the change in your feeling state around the end goal, getting it done on time, and when you're actually in the process of writing, compared to how maybe it's felt in the past? It now mm. feels um, like something I can handle. Right. Uh, it felt overwhelming before. Now it feels manageable. Even on the days when the words aren't flowing well, I have a sense of completion that I showed up, I put in the time, uh, and I deepen that creative groove. I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling that way about the, the whole project and everything I'm doing now, that if I take things in bite-sized pieces and work incrementally, I'll be a lot happier than if I you know, say I need all day Saturday and Sunday to do work and I don't know right. what work I'm going to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it feels feels much better. I feel like I'm more on more of a secure footing. Uh, as I put it to the publisher I'm working with, I feel more professional. Well, it's about setting boundaries up at some point. Um, boundaries for when we'll do our work boundaries or a container of of time so that you can do other things spend time with your partner Um, yes and i think the professionalism it's an interesting thing you said there i've noticed 
for myself, for example, I really try and keep all my work into like this space that I'm in here and the way that I've organized it with my art on the walls. I've created an environment for me that is conducive to how I think and that there's a uniformity of, of color. And it sounds like I'm going off topic, but I'm not. It's just no. that this is where I come to do all of my thought work or even like my volunteer work, but this is where I come to work. And then if I go downstairs, mm-hmm. I maybe I'll try and take my iPad instead of my computer, although I'll take my computer at different times. But it's it's just knowing when you're pushing your own boundaries as an entrepreneur, it's it can be hard in a relationship, especially if the other person isn't. Which leads me to the question, have have this is still early, but has anyone noticed a change in you, especially uh, with the uh, how you've implemented the structure for your schedule? Well, um, it prompted me to have a conversation with my husband about how I use my time, how I want mm. to use my time. And there has been a shift in my sense of I'm now being mindful of times when I need to be available for him and Mm -hmm. what times I need to reserve for myself and putting some discipline around how much I work frees me up to be disciplined about leaving time for my husband and I to do things like we just drove around for an hour and a half yesterday evening and that would have driven me nuts a week ago because I would have felt like this is time I'm wasting I need to be home doing something right I wouldn't know what I was supposed to be doing but I would be feeling I need to be home doing something (laughs) that's an it's an interesting challenge I face that it is this feeling of undoneness as a creator because we've probably always got more than one thing on the go and even if we're getting close to finishing something we've got another idea for something else (laughs) and it um it's a blessing and a curse in a way and you said it establishing priorities there may be 10 things you want to do but there's probably one that's the most important what we haven't got into yet is like I might have mentioned it, I think, in our last calls. Like, is there one thing that would dictate everything else? So, for example, this book that you're working on, can that inform the work you want to do for your videos? Can that inform the way in which you're going to build the community? So that as a, as a creator, you're leveraging your knowledge, but in different formats as a book, as a video, as an interview with another person, as a a group format, a training or something like that. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of how to package and repackage and break down the information that I've Mm -hmm. been assimilating and looking for, I'm even looking more carefully for the type of information that I can use again and again in different formats right? Um, so that I don't have to digest five pieces of information to work in five different formats. I just have to digest one and then adapt, adapt, adapt. So what's the challenge uh, or problem that you're facing today? I need to produce a revised outline to my publisher. Um, And I have spent much of the day doing that work. And the the thing about outlines and top-down structure is, for me, they're hard. And I need to get up and walk around and think about it and look at notes. And, you know, it's a very diffuse process. But it's been getting done. And I think the challenge for me is to figure out how to finish that work so that I can start, get back to producing content again. And I'm not feeling, I feel I have time to do that. Um, It's just emotionally scary. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, for some reason, creating large structures and outlines is emotionally scary for me. 
Uh, <laughs> what's what's scary about it? I don't know. I just feel a resistance. Um, I worry that I'm boxing myself in. I'm, I worry that I might pick the wrong structure and it will be too much trouble to tear it down and rebuild it. Like I was dismayed that I needed to do so much restructuring as I was not really asked, but invited to do, to consider. But after, you know, an hour of wrestling with it, I finally gave in and said, okay, let's start almost from scratch and rebuild from the ground up. Well, two points. One, just a general observation, and the second will be a question. When you're working with someone else, like a, a, a publisher, I can imagine that they are going to come at you with their own agenda. <laughs> yeah. So if you were self-publishing, you could do the outline in whatever way you wanted and produce the book in whatever way you wanted, right? When the publisher presented the invitation uh, to rejig the outline, um, what was the dominant emotional response or reaction on your end? There was a fair amount of fear because basically I had set up a seven-part structure and she wanted three of the parts, which was okay by me. She told me which three, which which was useful. Yes. Um, but now I'm also faced with um, the task of how to expand those three parts to, you know, what will be a substantial, well, and again, we're not working on a huge book, but we're um, something substantial enough that it won't be a pamphlet. Well, given how you first created the seven part outline or or whatever language you use to describe that, um, how would you use that same approach Um, with the three that she said she would like to work with? Well, um, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, it suddenly occurs to me that I need to do the same thing that we had talked about doing with the videos. I need to Mm -hmm. break it down into chunks of three points each. Mm -hmm. What three points do I want to make on this topic? If there are more than three points that I think about, breaking it up into a couple of different topics. That will be useful. It's good to remember. It's good to have a reminder to think in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. When you're at this point where you are right now, the the publisher, the editor has said, out of these seven, I want these three. Expand them more, come back to me. You already mentioned sometimes going out for walks, getting clarity. What sort of free-form creative, non-decisive brainstorming have you tried in the past? I used to do some graphic design. And Mm -hmm. so working in something visual keeps my hands busy Mm -hmm. so that my mind is free to sort of ruminate and come up with ideas. I did a little bit of that this morning Mm -hmm. when trying to get my footing. Uh, This morning I was quite upset over the latest killing of an innocent person. Mm -hmm. So I made a very simple tombstone image, black square with the person's name on it, and posted it to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But in the course of physically making that piece, ideas were occurring to me. And so it's making me think that I need to spend a little more, spend a little time each day doing something visual and mm-hmm. manual, more manual than typing. Okay. The other thing that that brings to mind is I um, had to practice a while ago that was very fruitful of reading a very short picture uh, portion of some spiritual master a mm-hmm. day and reflecting on that. And that was very nurturing. That gave mm-hmm. me lots of ideas and ways to frame things. So I want to get back to that. It's like all things. You have to find the, the sources or the strategies uh, that, that, that work for you. 
coming back to what you were saying, you're expressing an aspect of creative generation that's called incubation. Um, hmm. Doodling, reading something adjacent to your topic, uh, listening to music, dancing, doing something graphic, you know, that sort of stuff that puts you in flow state. And then parts of your brain are working on those other things uh, that are your primary sort of concern or, or projects. When we face those moments of, I just, I'm so frustrated. You, what you mentioned earlier was really fantastic. You might've been writing your 200 words, didn't get to your 300. You felt it was a struggle that day, but you, you felt ultimately good because you showed up. And in this sort of work where you are teaching something um, or you're putting something down that is going to be a, a teaching that that that's harder than it's not harder as in better it's 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 different than just say telling a story which will have its own yeah. problems right um mm-hmm. but it requires thought for you to then take what you know and to impart it in your own way but i want to just come back to the three um core topics of the outline and to get from incubation into those topics you've also got your 80 draft articles that you had told me about what resources do you have at your disposal that would bring you right into the thick of topic one topic two topic three of this outline that you could just put down bullet points or headers and subheaders to then feel like, wow, I've got something substantive here from these three topics out of the original seven. I think that I need to take a look at that list of articles and the, um, the script of the, the breakdowns for the video series that I was, uh, that I came up with mm-hmm. after looking at them and find out first of all which of the three topics they're applicable to and then once i get i may need to do this with post-it notes mm-hmm. but after i get them sorted into the three different parts one two three um mm-hmm. then i can go in and sort of organize them a little better and break them down how does this shift in the outline or this change this request to the change in the outline how I'm trying to ask, I guess, is you had been working towards these seven points of the five that, or sorry, of the four that were rejected, so to speak. <laughs> um, is there something in there that can be slotted underneath or added to? Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. They they can be uh, they they can be easily absorbed. How are you feeling about this next challenge? Do you have the, the, the strategies or the tools to, to take this on for the next week? Yeah, I think I do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's good because uh, you helped me come up with some ideas today that I can implement. Mm-hmm. Not today, but tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, looking. I'm. I'm actually feeling somewhat eager to um, play with some of these strategies we've come up with. Specifically, okay. taking the articles and the video breakdowns and seeing where they fit in this new structure, because yeah. then that will give me at least something to. It's like putting paint on a canvas. Once the paint is there, you can move it around. Mm-hmm. Right now, my boxes are looking empty. Yeah. <laughs> Well, moving things around, like you had said, maybe use post-it notes. There's so many different ways. There's like mind mapping with software or just like getting a, a really big piece of paper. I have like, um, I don't have anything nearby. I have a couple different sketchbooks that are larger than a normal piece of paper in case I just want to, sometimes I just write with different colors. I find that kind of helpful because then I, somehow have ideas in red and ideas in blue and ideas in green and that just just having those different colors um gives a way to express the ideas with some order that may then be broken down later on like get the ideas out observe refine and then work on them later 
I've even taken um, articles that I'm writing and then just printed them out and then cut the pages uh, between the headers and then moved things around to realize, oh, actually, this goes better here. And then I'm kind of repeating myself here. Um, And, you know, there's so many different ways of literally like to think of it as we've got so many ideas, they're puzzle pieces. Yes. Um, or yes. it's it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. Um, we're trying to get that complete picture, but, you know, along the way, we're going to be shuffling things in so many different uh, ways to get there. Well, I'd be interested to know just like one or two more questions here. So I wanted to, I had said to you, I wanted to do a, like a coaching light <laughs> touch on some things, but because we're doing the podcast, it um, I wanted to help present you as well and, and, and what you do so that uh, we can help Thank promote you. some of the work that you're doing. Kind of a, a personal question. How, we, how would you describe how our coaching works together? So I'm not asking you about me per se. I'm asking you sort of like the, the process. How would you describe how the process works for you? I would say that it's like you hold up a mirror Mm -hmm. um, and help me see more clearly what's going on with myself. Mm -hmm. And then you help me sort of tease apart the, the different threads to switch metaphors entirely Mm -hmm. um, and untangle things. And, And just so I could, lay everything out and see what it looks like. So then I can decide what to do. Uh, That gentle teasing out uh, and unraveling of the knots is uh, very freeing. You said the simplest thing, and I'm so glad you said it. Then I can decide what to do. Then I can decide what to do. (laughs) It's something I've learned in the last couple of years. and I really appreciate. Um, I think good coaching is about helping you, the client, make your own decisions. Um, yes. But but we struggle with making our own best decisions sometimes when we have too much going on, or when we're stressed or under threat because of pressure or overwhelm. And and what coaching can do is help bring you back, or. It's like lending you my thinking brain, in a sense, and and creating that space. And I like the way you said, like turning the mirror. Um, it's it's just open and meant to help you see all of your options and then choose what's best for you in in a frame that builds upon your own strengths. Yes. Because if I were to have said to you, well, John, Carl, you know, your scheduling is terrible and you really need to start booking things in your calendar. Well, you probably have never would have come back. <laughs> or you might have thought, well, yeah, I do need to put things in my calendar, but I don't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's that's the, the magic, I think, is finding out um, how you can do things and that's why we want to be entrepreneurs right yes yes in part because we've got our own ideas but also in part because we would like to work in in a way that serves us best yes Uh well and it's interesting because um there have been a number of coaches i've interviewed some are sex and intimacy coaches, some are relationship coaches, lifestyle coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I, I do like about your approach is that it's very gentle, but it's also very practical. I come away with things to do, things I can do that I feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, that really helps me be productive. Perfect. That's what we want. <laughs> I love it. Well, how do you feel now? We've been working together for, I guess, about uh, three months. Um, 
about the, the future success of, of this passion project, this book. I know it's early. Um, you know, we can't, you know, predict outcomes, but right. what is your general feeling from a couple of months ago to now? Well, I feel like my passion project is real. Mm. It exists. Um, it's meaningful. Uh, just raising the issues is helping other people think through how they conduct their lives yeah. and what they want out of life. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the project is taking a life of its own. And my job is to steer it like a, you know, a spirited horse. <laughs> Well, how do uh, how do people connect with you? Because I think you're, if I understand correctly, you're you're in some early stages of of launch, but you're also wanting to speak with individuals as part of um, like an interview uh, project that you have. Yes, I would like to hear people's stories um, about their own sexual decision making and sexual ethic. Uh, I would like to uh, know what works for people. I'd like to know what doesn't work for people. Um, I would like to know what would help, um, what people need to help them make better decisions or the best decisions of their lives. So the best email to reach me is info at sexgaychristian.com. Uh, and you can check out some of the resources I've put together at my website, uh, again, which is three words, sexgaychristian.com. Uh, and you can get in touch with me through the website or an email, Instagram, sexgaychristian, Twitter, sexgaychristian. And uh, let's talk because I'd love to hear your story. Wonderful. And you're fortunate that you were able to get the exact same name across the board for all your social media handles. <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody wants it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I realize that I may be in trouble with Instagram because I have the word sex in the title. Um, TikTok uh, blocked the name. There is a, an article or a video to be had just about being able to say the word sex, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, wow, we could just go on for another hour just talking about why that's so problematic, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to need to interview you at some point. Um, Wonderful. I'd love that. Because I, I, I actually believe you and um, separately, Taoism have a lot to offer people on a spiritual journey. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you've shared a lot with us here, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time telling us about what you're doing and where you've come from. Um, and I think the work that you're doing really has the potential to, to help a lot of people. It is a topic that I think more often than not is addressed from the negative, the shame side of things, yeah. or is shunned or suppressed or argued about. So you, you may be in a unique position in, in coming at it from sort of a, uh, a loving kindness, uh, let's have a conversation about it sort of approach. So best of mm -hmm. luck to how this grows and I look forward to being able to help along the journey. I thank you so much for your help. Thank you, John.